0: 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 7 through 21. I'm going to read it, and then we're just going to walk through a little bit of time. My intention is to make it through 21, but I've got this kind of inner wrangling, and I I might just go with it, and we'll just stop at the end of verse 19. So it's it's, it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure for me, and you guys are on the trip, okay? All right, buckle up. Let me read 17 through 21. He says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially... who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. For what? So that your faith and hope are in God. Last week, we looked at verses 14 through 16, and it was this all-encompassing idea of what it means to personally be holy in our lives. And, and hopefully, what you walked away from in that time is that holiness is achieved not from writing this list of things and engaging and, and, and checking these things off. You know, don't sleep around, don't drink excessively, don't steal from other people with a 32 caliber, as we learned in the video. Like, all these things are good things not to do, but this isn't how we get holy. This isn't how we're made holy. And so what we discovered as we went through this passage was the key to holiness is spending time with God. What we read is, is he who has called you is holy, you too be holy in all your conduct so it is time spent with God which is changing reordering and and making our internal desires those things he would cause to be our internal desires and not our own sense of self-importance not our drive not our ability to cut out change and reorder sinful desires time spent with God is what leads us into holiness well Peter it would seem is is chasing a, a parallel idea here and so In one sense, we've got this idea of holiness over here, and now he turns, and he begins to develop the idea of conduct. Now, what you'll see, and what you may have already seen, if you've engaged in any other study outside of our time together on Sunday mornings, reading through 1 Peter, is things are not good for them. Things are not good for them. Things aren't going great. They're not not just really enjoying suffering. Say, this is just fantastic. Somebody hit me again. I love it. This is not their reality. This is not what's going on for them. These aren't the things they're experiencing what they're experiencing is the normal process of finding themselves outside the circle of what is normative in culture outside of what is normative in culture and like we see ourselves finding uh, uh, us right now being outside that which is normative in culture. We see people casting ballots and making decisions that we just don't recognize, or certainly I don't recognize, and if you do recognize it, you understand it, let's talk, because you shouldn't, right? Right, the guy in the back that didn't laugh, let's talk later. But look at this here, he says that we should be on the outside, we should be looking in, things shouldn't be normal for us, there should be this strain, this tension. And so this discussion of conduct is incredibly important, because your conduct depends on what your focus is upon. And look at, let's see how he describes it. Let's walk through this together. He opens up in verse 17 and he says, And if you call on him as father. Now last week as we opened up the passage, he referred to them as obedient children. So he's developing this, this understanding of familial language. So in a family you have a mother, you have a father, potentially you have children, you have grandparents, you have this extended family. And he draws this direct connection between the Christian, the elect exile, and God. And this connection that he ties them in, he says, if you call on him as father. Now he's not describing this if-then thing so that you can walk through this passage and say, okay, I've never prayed to God as father and so this doesn't apply to me, I can just push this to the side. Peter is entering into the assumption that all those he writes to are believing in Jesus. All those he writes to are Christians who stand on the word of God. This is the assumption that he's making, so he's not writing this statement that you can apply to your life and say, "Oh, well, I've never prayed in this way, or I don't understand this this way, and therefore this must not apply to me. Let me also say to you, some of you, your fathers were jerks. They were awful men who abused you, who spoke down to you. And so any time you read through and you see a description of father, in your mind this internal wrangling uh, develops. You say, but my dad failed me in so many ways. My dad did not live up to any type of demonstration of, of even approaching goodness or kindness or lovingness. So for you, this understanding of father has always met with resistance. Let me just say to you, I'm so sorry. You deserve better. You deserve better. If your father had followed the instructions of Scripture, he would have cared for you in a way that would have led you towards God instead of placing obstacles to you coming to know him and to trust him as Father. The Father described in Scripture is perfect. He's lacking nothing. There's nothing deficient in his character. There's nothing deficient in the way that he cares for and provides for and interacts with his children. He is the model whereby all other fathers seek to live up to. So in all those places, your father failed you and you're tempted to read scripture through that lens. And so you read in this and say, if you call on him as father and you say, I can't stand that arrogant jerk. Know this, know this. All descriptions of father in the Bible or what your father should have lived up to and failed, but it gives you an opportunity to have a heavenly father who will never fail you, never forsake you, and who sent his son to demonstrate the great care with which he loves you, amen? Amen. So he says, if you call on him his father, and so he's writing this and and making this connection to all of us. Now look what he says next. He says, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds? Now, maybe in your mind, as you've gone through in your understanding of Christianity, Christianity really centers on the fact that we bring no judgment on anybody. So you see someone engaging in sinful behavior like, "Mum's the word. Internally, I'm persecuting you, but Mum's the word. I don't want to go there. Or, or in your own life, you're like, no one's judging me. I have freedom. I have grace in God. I can do whatever the heck I want to do. Let me just rain on your parade. Let me rain on your parade. Let me bring you back to what actual orthodoxy says, what the Bible actually says in terms of our conduct, in terms of our behavior. Let's begin here. We know that, therefore, Romans 8 1, there is no condemnation for all those in Jesus. Ultimately, ultimately, if you have submitted yourself to Jesus, you will be saved. Now, some of you are going to get there and your hair is going to be smelling like smoke, right? You're going to get there and you'll be like, how did that happen? How did that happen? And people are going to see you and be like, what? Her? Him? You got a what? But look at this. Recognize as we go through this. This father judges each one impartially. God doesn't judge you with some type of norm reference grading where he says, okay, we're going to have five saintly people in each church, and then from there on out, we're going to have the bulk of our people find themselves in nominalism. Nominal Christians, where culture is just just ransacking them. The picture, the lens, the trajectory is always towards Christ and his righteousness. So in this idea that he is bringing judgment upon us, he is, is moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, evaluating, discerning your behavior. Just as we looked last week that we're to be holy in all our conduct, know that in the midst of your conduct, in the midst of your failures, God sees that. He's not mocked. He's he's not saying, oh, you know, Patty stepped over into that corner and I couldn't dad gum and I couldn't see her. Why does she keep going into my blind spot or I'm so busy looking at Harry or D that I have no idea what, what the bells are up to? Oh, evade hey, these people they're so wily. Like this is no challenge for our God to look at us. Now some of you are saying, I really wish it was a challenge. I wish you would focus on some other people. Because I just need to fail every now and then. Right? Well, what he's saying here is he's, he's, he's looking into our behavior. He's evaluating our behavior. We're going to go to a number of pa- different passages today. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 10, Paul gives us a window into this. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It breeds sobriety in us. It breeds this understanding that we need to be about the business of serving our good God. Recognize in this that in redemption, when God moved to save you, he didn't create you to be this person who could just sit and passively watch everybody around you do something. There's this, for whatever reason, this ideology, especially if you have kids, that centers around getting your children to make a decision. And so we're a decision-oriented culture. And so your kids are growing up and they're in your home and you're pouring into them and you're like, please choose Jesus instead of Satan. Please choose Jesus instead of Satan. So your child chooses Jesus, they're baptized, you have a big celebration, you buy them a Bible, you put their name on it, and then you're like, I'm done, now it's time to plan retirement. But this is kind of who we are, this is kind of what we've done because we're a decision-oriented Culture, But recognize this, in the Great Commission, when Jesus is out there and he's laying these things out, he's not calling the disciples to engage in decision-making, leading people to make decisions. He's calling them into making disciples. Effectively, this is what he's calling them to do. We want you to go in, uh, immerse yourself in someone's life, call them to observe your behavior, emulate your behavior as you're emulating Christ and then we want you to turn around and observe them seeking to do these same things it's not a decision we're trying to bring people to it is a lifestyle change that begins with a decision but continues over the course of their life Ephesians two ten tells us that he has saved us and made us to be a people who are about good works that he created beforehand recognize that God created good works for you to walk out over the course and trajectory of your Christian life if you are not engaging in doing good works to the expansion of the kingdom, then you're being disobedient to God. There's not an easy way to say that. If you find yourself constantly being served and not serving, then you're being disobedient because he saved you not to sit on your laurels, not to let your backside grow large. He saved you so you get up off of it and serve other people. Now some of you, this is a terrific weight loss program, right? You guys are hard today. <laughs> After the first of the year, everybody gets a little crabby, you know? Everybody's got these really audacious weight loss plans, and then when those things don't pan out, every decision or everything I say about weight loss, you're like, I hate myself! <laughs> and I hate him for reminding me that I hate myself. It's this inner, inner turmoil. I'm in the Lexus. Let the air out of its tires. I'm not. That's... <laughs> so look what he says here. We call him and his father. We have this intimate relationship with God. And we recognize that in the midst of that relationship, he's judging and evaluating the decisions we're making. And so it's causing us to evaluate how we're doing these things and and the time we're spending with him and, and, and what these things look like. Now, the imperative, the command in this passage is found in this next little section. He says, if you do this, then do this. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile." Fear is a scary word. Fear is a scary word, this idea, and so we, 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 we neuter it effectively and say, no, it's this idea of reverential awe. When have you ever reverentially awed anybody, right? And so really, we kind of water that down and say, it's to look up to, to, to really kind of aspire to, and just to hold off there at a distance, at arm's length, and to say, this is, you know, we want to take into account that he's, he's big and he's mighty and that he's over there, right? And so reverential awe becomes this denuded phrase that means nothing to us and affects nothing. And so I really think the idea is we need to fear God. We need to fear God. If you understand him and who he is as holy, H-O-L-Y, and wholly different, then we recognize that the only appropriate response before God is one of fear. It's not looking up and holding off at a, dif- at, a, at, a, at a distance. It's one of recognizing that he is imminent, he is close, and he is completely different than everything you experience in this life. Let's, let's, let's inform ourselves. Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8, 5-7. God is speaking, and he says, but thus you shall deal with them, you shall break down their... Oh, that's not it, that's going to be confusing. 5-7, through 7. here we go, wrong, wrong column. He says, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways, and listen to this, by fearing him. By fearing him. And then what's God's going to do for these Israelites? He says, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. And he goes on to describe this land. Within Proverbs 14, too, again we see this idea. It says, whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord. Within Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon goes through the course of, of Ecclesiastes and he demonstrates that he sought pleasure in everything. He said, I want to I see what it is to enjoy pleasure of drink. And so he drank to his heart's content. He partied to his heart's content. He had money to his heart's content. One little kid said, I know why he was so angry. He had all those porcupines. But in reality, he had concubines. is sexual exploitation. right? Sexual exploitation to his heart's content. All these things, every pleasure before him, everything that you might think to set your mind on sex, money, power, he explored. He enjoyed. And all these things, the end of them, he said, vanity of vanities. And so he makes it down to the very end of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. And he said all this, this is what all his experience led him to understand. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil the judgment of God is not an Old Testament concept the judgment of God in our lives is his character he loves you he loves you what if you having any children would just say like go and be and I'll catch up to you when you have grandkids right And so you're at the hospital. The doctor says, congratulations, you owe us like a million dollars for the rest of your life for this kid. And you get home and you're like, I'm going to put you in your crib. You go and be. I'll catch up to you when you have grandkids and they're cute. I can be involved in joy but not have to parent. It would be awful. It would be horrible. CPS would be called on you. We cannot have this same understanding of God. His love for you mandates his involvement and investiture in your life. Recognize that God's involvement in your life, His evaluating of how you are doing in these things, is, sti- is, is situated on His great love for you. Let's look at two examples of what this idea of fearing God looks like. Don't turn there, but just let me read it to you. Isaiah six, Isaiah six, verses one through five. Isaiah has a vision of God, and he says, "I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up." And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. And each had six wings. And with two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook. And the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts so Isaiah has this vision of God and in this vision he recognizes his depravity, his sinfulness when he sees God it produces fear in him John writing in the book of Revelation has this brilliant, masterful description of what he sees of Jesus. Hair white like snow, his eyes were a flame of fire, and then he gives in verse 17, and look what he says. He says, when I saw him, I fell on my face as though dead. Fear. Fear. To see God as he is, to know God as he is, produces fear in us. When I was growing up, my grandfather was probably the most terrifying figure of my life. I was fairly convinced that he worked for the CIA. Uh, He always he always lived in the Middle East. There was always some conflict and then he would leave the country. Convenient, right? And so he was always gone and I would only ever see him in the summer, but I'd see him for like three days every summer. And what I remember was when he got there, the social fabric, the dynamic of my grandmother's home changed. She'd go to bed earlier, Hill Street Blues got turned off, right? She's not falling asleep to the television, and I was terrified of him. I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want to look at him. Every summer, the, most of the extent of my engagement with my grandfather centered around he would give each grandchild one musket ball, one musket ball. You know how small a musket ball is? Look at the end of your pinky. Some of you, look at the end of your wife's pinky, right? This super small musket ball. And I'm, I'm four, I'm five, I'm six. And he'd hand it to me. I'm like, whoa. I mean, what am I going to do with this? It's awesome, though. I love it. Thank you, terrifying man. And so, and so five minutes later, I've lost that thing. I mean, it's gone. I had a hole in my pocket. I fed it to a lizard. I flushed it down their toilet. You know, whatever. It's gone. And I'd go to him, and I'd say, hey, look, I, I lost that. What does every kid say? Can I have another? Right? It's, it's natural, isn't it? I thought I was alone. Because his response was always, next year. Next year you can have another one. I'm four years old, I've got to wait a year to get another musket ball. You've got to be kidding me. Where do you keep those things? But I was terrified of him. I can remember an instance where he, he wanted to cut my fingernails. And in my mind, and this is so vivid because he would not let it go, he sat at the dining room table, at the head of the table, and I remember walking through my grandparents' kitchen and he was like, Dom, 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 Dom. I mean, so like, he's gonna bite my fingers off. I was terrified of him. I was afraid of him. I didn't know him. I didn't know him. I spent maybe five days with him every summer. I did not know him. My fear of him was was irrational my fear of him was not based on who he was it was based on my perception of how he would act our fear of God is based on our knowing him the one who has called you is holy God is perfection in him there is no darkness God is light of true life There is no darkness, there is no deficiency in God, there is no weakness in Him, He is all power, all brilliance, all love, all perfection. There is nothing we encounter that even remotely approaches that, and it is terrifying. To know Him is to fear Him. It's not a fear that we associate with people that we're just afraid of, Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders or whoever it is this fear that is centered on an intimate knowledge of who he is and so based on this, based on this understanding of who God is, this understanding that when we come before his presence we fall on our face this understanding that if we were to stand before him we would say woe is me, this understanding radically changes our course of action this understanding radically alters our conduct, this is what he's saying because you Call on him as father. Your fear should drive and change your conduct. It should drive and change your conduct. The way that we engage with people on the basis of what we know about God affects our conduct. Because we serve a God who is judging us, who is looking into our lives. And we know him. And because we know him, we fear him. Look at how this breaks out of verse 18. This is how Peter spins up. This is how our conduct is changed. He says, knowing, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Our conduct hinges on what we know. Our conduct hinges on what we know. He says, know this, you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers. As we come into this, Peter does something that would have been incredibly shocking to a first century audience. To a first century audience, either Jew or Greek, the idea of heritage received from your forefathers is something universally prized, universally looked up to and admired. And so somebody might say, oh, you're just like your dad. You're just like your mom. You do that just like your family did. You have a terrific work ethic, just like your family had. You worship Artemis, just like everybody else did. And so this idea of a heritage handed down was a valuable and precious thing but look what he describes it as futile empty vain and amounting to nothing he says you were ransomed from this Jesus' blood cleansed you from what you presumed to be a good thing and so he's writing to them and they're like I don't understand and he says but it's not with perishable things it's just silver or gold he takes three things that are valued in their culture the heritage they received from the people that came before him silver and gold he says these things had nothing to do with redeeming you and the thing you redeem from is likely the thing you prize and cherish are we so different are we so different effectively he would come into us in our culture and he would say you're like your dad you're a hard worker you're just like that greatest generation of Americans who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and really set this country back on the road to economic prosperity, to the centrality of family, to driving at all these things. And we recognize that even though these things may be good, I mean, I'm not calling you for a slovenly laziness. I heard Matt bat say, don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I took my boots and burned them. I'm going to sit on my butt and watch you get big, right? This isn't what he's calling us to. He's calling us to radical engagement. He's calling us to this understanding that those things that came before us, that we might look and say they are good, these things can be liabilities. They are not the gospel. When we look on good things and we say they are ultimate things, when we look on on the work ethics of our parents or how great their relationship was, and these are things we want to incorporate into our lives, and we make them the ultimate things, we make our family the ultimate thing, we have lost it. This is why there is no saltiness to our Christianity and our culture. This is why we lose the battle for engaging with people when we find the good things in our past and we make them the ultimate things in our present. You were ransomed from this. All the mistakes you made in your past, those are good things to forget. Those are fun things to forget. But all the things in your rich heritage and how great your parents and your grandparents were, these are things that are difficult for us not to hold on to and to bring into our Christian faith and to baptize and to make central to our expression of Christianity. What he calls you to here is understanding that the blood of Jesus saved you from those things. The blood of Jesus saved you from good things, not great things. The only great thing is leaning on the everlasting arms of Jesus. The only good thing in us is to appeal to the goodness and perfection of jesus and so he calls them and he says know this you're ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers and in some way quoting isaiah 52 3 you were sold for nothing you were ransomed for nothing he he causes us to focus in on jesus look what he does in verse 19 Verse 18, he called us to focus that we're not, we weren't ransomed with these things. We were pulled away from the goodness. Verse 19, he says, this is what you focus on. It's the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Leviticus twenty two twenty one 21 described the lamb that would be brought and to be offered. It said it had to be perfect and couldn't have any spot on it. And Peter comes into it here, and he applies a word that is not associated with this lamb. He applies this idea of having a blemish. And so he comes to Jesus, and he said, His blood is perfect. There is nothing deficient in His blood. There is nothing lacking in His blood. And His blood is the sole thing that worked to bring redemption in your life. Amen? Our focus on having fear demonstrated throughout our conduct stems from comes from our focus on Jesus and his sacrifice if a focus on Jesus and his sacrifice is not a daily part of your living a daily part of your understanding a daily part of who you are then you will find yourself drifting further and further and further away as christians we are a people of his blood we are we are purchased with his blood we are sealed with his blood we are redeemed with his blood our identity is situated found in located in only ever abiding in his blood it's not some good thing we've done it's not some good thing handed down from our grandparents it is his blood and his blood alone where is it found oh come on come on where is it found his blood come on now where is it found his blood. man come on now we gotta recruit some Pentecostals to come in here it's found in his blood we have to know that we have to believe that you've got to change your behavior not on the basis of making a list but on the basis of focusing yourself on the sacrifice of Jesus it is on his blood it's on his blood alone This is where all of our hope and trust lies on the precious blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Look what he does. He goes on to really help us to understand who Jesus is. He goes into this really descriptive understanding of who Jesus is. He's speaking of Jesus. He says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. If you're to read through 1 Peter, the only other place where you see this idea of foreknowledge coming in so far within our study is found back in verse 2. Look back at it. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, our salvation, this trinitarianly wrought thing, starts with the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, sprinkling it with the blood of the Son in obedience to the same. And he comes into Jesus. And speaking of the one who would redeem us, speaking of the one who would produce sinlessness in us, holiness in us, speaking of Jesus, he says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Jesus, in redemption in his name, was not some New Testament development. It wasn't as if God said, oh, humanity is so sinful, I don't know what I can do. And he started really twiddling his thumbs and, and wringing his hands, trying to figure out how to make this thing better. Jesus was always plan A for the redemption of humanity. He's always plan A for the redemption of humanity. And look what he says here. He was foreknown. So Jesus, ever being with God, ever being God, being the preexistent one, being eternal himself with the Father, was made manifest. He says he was shown. He came into the world. And we know Jesus came into the world as a a baby. And he grew up as a man. And he surrendered his life as an atoning sacrifice so that you might be redeemed. Always calling our attention back, not to his virgin birth, but to the way that he went out. Always calling our attention back to the sacrifice of Jesus. He was foreknown. But in these last times, he's been made manifest for the sake of you. God's great love for you, God's great love for you led to the sacrifice of the son so that you might be forgiven. And then God caused his word to endure, his word to be preserved from the prophets, and ultimately, if somebody shared the gospel with you, he infused that communication with power by the Holy Spirit, and your heart was forever changed, all in the movement of this great God. Look what, he did. Look what he gets into in verse 21. He begins to kind of tie these things together. Coming back to his audience, he says, who through him are believers in God. Our belief in God always comes through the conduit of Jesus. Our belief through God doesn't come from the saintly grandmother who shared the gospel with us, the kindly Gideon who gave us a Bible. Our salvation always comes through Jesus. And these people are willing intermediaries, willing spokespeople that are infused by the power of the Holy Spirit and bringing change in us by the same. And he says, you are through him, through Jesus, believers in God. And this is what God did. He raised Jesus up from the dead and gave him glory why did God do this? Why would he do this? Why would he engage in this behavior? Why would he do these things? Look what he says here. So that your faith and hope are in God. The temptation over the last two weeks as we looked at the call to be holy and the call to have godly conduct is that we would be making something of ourselves. This is the real temptation for us. That that maybe over the year of 2016 you set as a goal to grow closer to God so you get to the end of 2016 and 2017 and you look through your diary and you're like, look at that, I didn't sleep around, look at that, I didn't steal from anybody's uh, bank account, look at that, I I said hello to all the people I hate. Oh man, it was a banner year for me. It was a banner year for me and so you put your faith and your ability to alter and change your conduct. You lost it. If this is what your plan for 2016 is, it's going to be a waste. Go back to sleep. Wake up in 2017 and let's start again. No, seriously though. He calls us in this to find our faith and our hope in God. Our faith, looking back at verse 3, centers on the sure fact of the resurrection. And our hope, centered on verse 7, finds ourselves on the sure fact of Jesus' return. And so we find ourselves in the middle of these things. Our holiness is is produced in our lives by focusing on God. Our conduct is forever changed by focusing on Christ and his resurrection. Neither of these things find us navel-gazing and, and, and making lists that will change our behavior. If we're to be a people that are holy as he is holy, if we are to be a people who conduct ourselves with fear throughout our exile, then we've got to be a people who not focus inward, but are keep our focus upward, on the God who is holy, and on the Christ who has submitted himself to be an atoning sacrifice for your sins and for mine. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning we come to you and we're just recognized that, got to recognize and and confess my own uh, dependence on lists and things I can check off and boxes I can mark through and and things that that are able to be metriced. It is convenient. It is easy to make a list of things and to check that off. I'm so incredibly appreciative that you're evaluating my heart just as you evaluate my actions. Father, I pray that you would cause us, as we reflect on the truth of who you are, holy in every way, that you would cause our conduct to be changing. Father, I pray that as we focus ourselves on the sacrifice of Jesus, that our lives would forever be lived in humble, glad, obedience, and submission to our one and true King. So God, would you help us to walk in that? Would you apply that truth to our lives? Would we be forever transformed and changed in our thinking patterns? that as we focus on you and your holiness and Christ and his sacrifice, that we would grow in holiness and that our conduct would be such that would bring glory and honor to your name. Father, help us to walk in that application. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.